And now let's turn to Jonah, chapter 1. We finished John last week. We're going to be spending a month or so, maybe uh, six weeks, looking at this book in the Old Testament, about halfway through your Bible, um, that is named after the prophet Jonah. Uh, Like many of you, I am a Tim Keller disciple. Um, Tim Keller is a, a pastor who's uh, retiring now um, as a, a, not in total, but as the main communicating pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church um, up in New York City. Um, I started listening to Tim before some of y'all were born. Um, back in the cassette days, can I get an amen from some of y'all, the cassette days, for, for some of y'all college students over here, there used to be this thing. It was plastic, and it had actual tape in it that recorded things on it, and you stuck it in, and it, you had to push it. And, and you, okay. Back then, I used to be on Tim Keller's tape ministry, um, and so they would ship me a cassette tape of his sermons um, after he preached them on Sunday. They would record them, and they'd ship them out, and so I'd get them like a week later. Um, and I remember very vividly one of the most influential, memorable series that he ever did was on the book of Jonah. Um, not because, not necessarily, because the content of the, the, uh, the sermon series was mind-blowing in any way. It's a pretty straightforward book in a lot of ways. Um, but because of when he preached it. The, the sermon that he preached on the verses that we will cover this morning was preached on September 9th, 2001, two days before 9-11. When they picked the series back up in late September, there was a very different feel to the study of the book of Jonah. A very different feel and for two reasons. First of all, Jonah is not essentially about Jonah. It's about God. And his mercy. The protagonist, the hero of the story is God for sure. The antagonist is Jonah. It is about his mercy and his presence. It's about his grace, his saving grace through Christ that comes um, not because anyone deserves it, but because he loves his creation, the crown of his creation, people all over the world and people like you and me. Um. It felt like the the folks in New York, two days later, had a better grasp on that after 9-11. It felt like they were sort of woken up to the need for God's presence and his grace. Like most of us, New Yorkers live much of their lives in their own world, right? Either asleep of their need of the presence of God or just doing their own thing, Um, We want to believe we're self-sufficient and secure, but 9-11, it seemed, woke them up to their need. The second reason that it it was very different was the urgency of one of the main themes that we get in the book of Jonah, and that's the calling of all Christians to share their faith, to share their faith in a present God to their neighbors in the face of the reality of death that they had just personally witnessed so profoundly 
and in the face of real evil in this world. 9-11 also woke them up to the responsibility to do what Jonah wouldn't do or had a hard time doing anyway, which is to share his faith in a, a merciful, good God. Maybe we need to wake up some too, both to that depth of mercy and presence, but also to God's call to live out our faith openly in a world such as the one we live in and in a city, the great city of Austin, Texas, um, to live it out as a proclamation to his mercy and presence. Uh, Jonah, like I said, is a tragic figure, but he's instructive on how we are to relate to God and his callings. One writer said that the purpose of Jonah was uh, to mess with us, to mess with the reader. He said, it holds up a mirror to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst part of our own character magnified. Now, um, we tend to think of Jonah, put Jonah in the category of one of those kid stories that has the Veggie Tales cuteness all over it, right? Um, like Noah and the Ark, which is terrifying, um, that we put m- mobiles of Noah and the Ark over our children's uh, cribs. Um, anyway, um, the... Um, <laughs> Jonah is, Jonah is a very severe story, and so I'm just telling you that up front. It's, it, it doesn't mess around. Um, it's not going to leave you with many warm fuzzies, frankly, um, over the course of the next month. But, um, but it will, I hope and pray, convict us. Um, so let's turn our sober hearts now to God's word. Okay? Our reading this morning comes from Jonah, chapter 1, the first six verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, During my time in college uh, here at UT, um, uh, you guys, you college guys will relate to this. Um, everyone was asking me, so what are you going to do when you get out, right? What are you going to do, Jay? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do? Um, and I got so tired of that question because I didn't know what I was going to do when I got out. And so the smarty pants that I was, I began to, to answer that question with, well, I'm going to be a prophet. <laughs> What are you going to do, Jay? I'm going to be a prophet. Hmm. 
And then they would say, Jay's having too much fun at college, clearly. Um, Those questions will persist. I hate to break it to you, college students. Uh, What do you do? 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 That's the question, right? We always get. Um, What do you do? And for all of us, as it turns out, my answer was spot on. We are all called, in one sense, to be prophets, if we are indeed Christians. Uh, now, a prophet in the Bible, I have, to, uh, I have to disclaim this because it's important. The prophet in the Bible has a very unique, special calling. Okay, So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, they were called on to look down in, through, through the mind of God and, and to look towards the future and to, um, to give counsel to the leaders of Israel regarding uh, the future and to try to steer the, the, the decision-making of those leaders according to what God gave them as vision. So there is a predictive quality of being a prophet, like to predict the future, right? But, and that's not what I'm talking about. None of you guys should, don't go out and buy crystal balls or uh, tarot cards or anything like that. That ain't my point. My point is the other part of the calling of being a prophet is as a mouthpiece of God of someone who proclaims the truth in words and in their lives, in what they do, all of what they do to the world. A mouthpiece of God and a mouthpiece to God. Someone who comes and and interacts on behalf of our neighbors, who takes our neighbor's needs, who don't know the Lord before the Lord and says, Lord, please, please, Turn your attention, turn your eyes, turn your heart towards this person or that person or this issue or that issue. So in the sense of being a mouthpiece, in the sense of living out um, visibly our, um, our belonging to the people of God and to God, we are all in that way to be prophets. As Walker Percy put it long ago, all Christians in all of their vocations, be it uh, a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker are, as he said, signposts in a strange land. We are signposts to a God who is present and who wants relationship, who, who wants to shed his grace on thee. Signposts to a, a hope that he gives, which is precisely what the prophet's calling is. We are to do that in all of our callings. There is no sacred and secular calling, y'all. In all that you do, you are to be a signpost to the God who is merciful and present. So next time when you're asked, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Your answer can legitimately say, I'm a prophetic mom. Or I'm a prophetic banker or a prophetic Student, because you are. That is part of your calling if you are a follower of Christ. Now, if you are not a follower of Christ, we are so glad you're here. Um, And you may be saying to yourself, that is the worst part of this whole thing y'all call Christianity is that you want people to talk about it out there. Right? Please just keep it to yourself. My goodness. 
And I understand that very much. The church has done a very poor job. And Christians have done a very poor job of living on our faith in a way that anyone would want to, to come into the presence of God, frankly. And we have much to repent for. Amen? Some of you all have been burned bad by the church. And I will just say, on behalf of the church, I'm sorry. Um, But if you see sharing our faith in the right light, if you see the heart beneath it, what I hope that you will see is that what we want to convey is not judgment or anything like that, but mercy and love of God. We want you to know God's love. That's where our hearts ought to be anyway. And frankly, if we don't speak, if we don't live it out, if we're not prophetic in some ways, frankly, if we, if we know, if we believe that Jesus is the, the, the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the king of kings, the creator of all things, and that he loves us and wants to love you, how cruel would it be, honestly, if we just said, I'll let you figure that out. That's just for me. So keep that in mind. And I hope that if you are not a follower of Christ and here this morning checking it out, that you will hear that in these passages and um, in this as I exercise my prophetic calling. Um, But that's part of the deal. We are all prophets, and we see that clearly in the aspects of the prophet's calling in our verses. Verse 2, arise, Nineveh. Uh, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Um, in, In the Hebrew, this call out against really means to confront somebody, but not just to judge them, but as an invitation. It's confrontation with an invitation to a better way, a better path. Call out against Invite into. That's our call too. This is not easy. I get it. Y'all didn't come here to hear a, a sermon on evangelism. You never do. I have never heard anybody say, "Could you guys, could you please preach more on evangelism?" Because I love it so much. It's hard. Um. I love our church's heart. I really do. I hope you know that. Um, from the very beginning when we planted this church three years ago, um, there was a, I heard it all the time, this, this desire to be really live into the for the city part of our, of our mission statement, to be a gospel-formed family for the city. But it's hard. And you guys, have, we've all been radically generous, and that is great. But, but it's harder to actually get involved than it is to write a check. And that's really what we want. We want your checks because money does matter, but really we want you active, speaking, caring for the poor, caring for the brokenhearted, showing up at mobile loaves and fishes, doing the things to be a presence of God's light in a dark world. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. All of us is this calling to be the mouthpiece of God. But it's hard. 
It's hard to see our vocations as signposts to God, even, you know, the common grace for the common good. How is being a real estate agent a signpost to God? How can I figure that out? Oh, believe me, it is. Common grace for the common good. It takes courage, though, to live your faith in the open, and many of us are afraid. I know, like Jonah is. Jonah is a sleeper. He's called that in our passage by these sailors. Um, that's not a sleeper in terms of like a low-ranked team that actually has a ton of talent and you should bet on because he may actually succeed. No, no, he's a sleeper in that he sleeps. And he is sleeping on the job. This is, a, this is not a compliment about Jonah from the sailor. He is saying, um, you are laying down on your job. You're the professional here. We are sailors. Call on your God. Wake up, you sleeper. Some of us are sleepers too. Ironically, Jonah is being contrasted with these sailors in these verses. This is the first of several um, contrasts that we will get of Jonah. These are pagan sailors who then, as today, have reputations for having a mouth like a sailor. (laughs) These are not God worshipers, but they're afraid. And they are desperate and they know they need help and so they at least are active to call out beyond themselves in their humility while the pro Jonah goes abdicating away checking out in sleep we're told specifically two times in one verse that he is fleeing from the presence of God literally he says he is fleeing from the face of God and y'all need to know that to the Hebrew readers of this, that would have shocked them utterly. That would have been one of the most shocking statements in the Bible. Why is Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Because the whole Bible, as we mentioned in our baptism, the whole Bible is about getting into the presence of the Lord. It's about connecting with God. It's about understanding God's favor and his presence and grace in our lives. And here, the man of God is saying, I'm done. I'm leaving everything that I've ever stood for, is what he's he's saying here. All through Lent, and we're going to continue it through Jonah as well, we conclude our time together with Aaron's blessing from the book of Numbers and our benediction at the very end. You know, we love that one. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Doesn't that just... Isn't that nice? You know, a little more to make his face shine. Unless you don't want God's face to shine upon you. Unless you want to be away from the presence of God. Then it's like, no, thank you very much. Don't send me out with that. That is a blessing that Aaron, interestingly, gives to his priestly sons that says to me, you are covered in the presence and the aroma of God. Now go out. In the world, with that presence, that's how we uh, mean it for us when we send you out. You're covered in the presence of God. Go be the aroma of presence to the world. But Jonah is doing the exact opposite. He is in a complete anti-God state of mind. Much is made about Tarshish. 
and honestly, I think too much is made about Tarshish. Like, where was Tarshish? It's like this exotic place. And, and Jonah was like, ooh, that would be nicer. There's nothing in the Bible about that. We don't even know where Tarshish is. And it really doesn't matter because that's not really not the point. The point is God, Jonah is flat out running away from God. He is flat out saying, I'm done, I'm rebelling, I'm not going to do what God says, and I'm going to go find the, place, the farthest away place from the temple where he lives or from Nineveh where he wants to send me. So I'm going in the opposite direction just to get rid of him. It's a shocking statement. Why, though? What's going on with Jonah? Why is he so adamant about rebelling against what God wants him to do? Why is he, what's going on in his heart? This is what we're going to be unpacking for the next month, really. But we start in our verses this morning. A couple of points, then we'll be done. Do you know where Nineveh is? Anyone know where Nineveh is? It's actually not a modern city. The Middle Eastern expert does. Nineveh is, most archaeologists believe, basically where the city of Mosul is today in Iraq. Does that ring a bell? The city of Mosul? Second largest city in the nation of Iraq. If you've been keeping up with the news, you know that Mosul was the headquarters of ISIS. For a long time, they, they just lost that headquarters a few months back. But Mosul had become, to all of our sensibilities, who kept it the place of real evil and darkness, right? Now take that feeling that you have. That's the place where ISIS is. Now take that feeling that you have and put that into Jonah's heart. That's how Jonah felt times a thousand because he lived in Israel, who was actually in the threatening bullseye of Mosul, of ISIS, of Assyria, of Nineveh. The Jews hated the Assyrians. The Jews hated them. When he found out he was going to Nineveh, There's no way that Jonah would have said, yippee, let's catch the first flight out. It was not the place to go. Tarshish, here I come. Jonah, like most Jews, hated the Assyrians. He has no desire for diplomatic negotiations. He wants shock and awe. F-14s, thank you very much. Not a call to merciful repentance for the sake of him knowing our God. That's crazy. And so certainly part of what's going on in Jonah's heart is an element of hatred. Real hatred for another race. Real racism, really. That's certainly a part of what's going on. But that hatred is rooted, as is much of our racism today, in fear. And the need to self-protect. Uh, one of the, the most bizarre moments when we went to Israel was when we went to the Golan Heights. 
Now, the Golan Heights is on the border between Israel and Syria, what is Syria today. And, and our little tour bus went in, and we drove up the, this mountain on the top of the Golan Heights, and we get out, and we walk up the path a little ways. And there before us is probably the nicest gift shop I've, I, we saw the whole time there. They, they were serving pizza and really good coffee. And I'm like, oh, that's great. This is awesome. What are we here to see again? You know, what's, what's the deal with the Golan Heights? We walk up, and then there are UN peacekeepers on the top of the mountain that we're there in trenches, looking through their eyeglasses over into Syria. And I'm walking over there with my guide, and the guide said, yeah, um, see that city over there? I was like, yeah, it's right, right there. He said, um, well, there, uh, there are known ISIS elements right there. And I'm like, Oh, uh, I'm going to skip the pizza, and I'm going to get on the bus, right? And can we get out of here? There was, because of the threat, a fear and a desperate need within me for self-protection. That's, in part, what's happening with Jonah. He's like, those are bad dudes there. And they threaten me. They are threatening to me. Fear. It's one of our deepest obstacles to our prophetic calling. Fear is one of our deepest obstacles to prophetic, our prophetic calling. Fear takes many forms. We're afraid of of serving the poor and the refugees sometimes because what if they're terrorists? What if they will hurt us? What if they will hurt us economically? Right? Fear of self-protection there. Certainly that was part of Jonah's fear. Um, There's also fear of Jonah losing his job. Weirdly, almost like we might be afraid if we if we're visible Christians in our own workplaces. Um, Jonah appears in one other place in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 14, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, for those of you who don't know, was a bad dude. He was the, one of the, if not the worst king of Israel at the time. Um, Jonah prophesied in favor of Jeroboam, saying that basically Jeroboam was fine. He was doing what God wanted him to do. He's good. Um, And that, guess who turned around? Amos, Jonah's contemporary, turned around and said, no, 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 no. No, 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 Jeroboam, you're a bad dude. You're not in God's favor. But if we read that and know that going into the book of Jonah, we already know something of Jonah's heart. We also should be wary, shouldn't we, of Jonah's heart a bit. He's kind of a brown noser. And he's really much more concerned about his own self-protection than he is about speaking what's true if it's hard. Um, Jonah is afraid of losing his job, but he's also afraid of what his kinsmen will think of him if he does go to Nineveh. Um, not only because they don't like Assyrians either, but more, and this is, this is a 
concept that we need to grasp if we're going to understand really the book. Um, More, he knows um, what God's deeper motives are in showing mercy to Nineveh. Hang in there. This is this is this may flip flip fit some things for you. There is a long pattern in the Old Testament, starting in Deuteronomy 32, where God, when which every everybody everybody knew Deuteronomy 32. Everybody in the nation had sung that since they were a little kids. Song. Part of that song is. How the Lord responds to Israel if Israel forsakes them. Yahweh threatens to turn his attention to other nations in order to make Israel jealous. So that Israel will wake up and recognize that they have a God who loves them. He uses jealousy in order to make them jealous, in order to bring them back to self. And this is what scholars believe Jonah is being called to do, and that Jonah would have known this, because he did that with Elijah a few times, right before Jonah. And so he's sending Jonah into Assyria, not only to show mercy to Nineveh, to those people, but also to convict Israel back home that God was... God wanted them, too, and that they had forsaken them. Does that make sense? Imagine this illustration. It's a terrible illustration. It's the best I could come up with. It's halfway good. Imagine you're friends with a couple, um, and you go out to dinner, and, and you find out, or you go out to dinner with the husband of this couple, and you find out that the wife is uh, being unfaithful. To him. He's confiding in you about it. And then he comes up with a scheme to make his wife jealous so she'll stop it. And so she, he asks you, he's like, will you, will you go and tell that woman across, across the restaurant here to come over? I'd like to talk to her. Now, um, what if the wife caught wind that you were the instrument in doing this? Who would be the bad guy? You would? How could you participate in that? Something that's actually going to hurt me, even though I'm the adulterer. Right? Do you get it? Now, that's a terrible illustration because God does not want to make, does not want to use this other person <laughs> to make his wife jealous. Okay, it's God. It's not, he's, not, he's not a smarmy husband who would manipulate his wife. Okay? <clears throat> But that's, the point is, is that that's the, that's the role that Jonah finds himself in. He's, he's sort of the, the mouthpiece of a God who's, uh, and, and part of the repercussions is he's going to, it's going to bring hardship onto his own kinsmen. And so he wants no part of that. I don't want any part of that scheme. Jonah doesn't and will not, doesn't want to and will not obey because of fear of his kinsmen's disappointment with him. He is a people pleaser. He is afraid of what people might think, to to put a sharper point on it, and that gets in the way of his prophetic calling. 
how do we apply this? I will tell you that in writing this, I had to pray lots of times for courage to say, for courage to be prophetic and to tell you how I think we need to apply this. I don't want to be this guy who says this because I want you all to like me. I do. I want you to like me. I don't want to say hard things that will convict you and then you'll go home and have a crummy Sunday afternoon. But that's what this is about, so I'm going to say it. I want, I want you to know, like I'm so, I'm so tentative about this. Honestly, I just want you to know that I say this with a, with a desire that you will know the mercy of God um, and that you will be awash in that mercy and that you will see that the, the city needs God's mercy. But I will say what I'm going to say now after disclaiming it for 10 minutes. Can I not say it? Would you mind if I just didn't say it? Um, I'm saying it. Some of us are running away. Some of us are sleeping. Some of us are too afraid to share our faith. Because we're people pleasers. Um, We're uh, afraid of being offensive. We are afraid and... By doing so, brothers and sisters, and this may be the hardest edge, um, we are refusing to show God's mercy to a dying world. Um, And I think mostly that's because we're asleep most of the time to what the New Yorkers felt after 9-11. The supply of God's grace to you. The, the love of God's mercy for you, if that became bigger in our hearts, if we, real, if we got out of our sort of whatever we're doing, going, if that became really real to you like it ought to be, then, then you're going to go out to the highways and the byways and you're going to speak because it's the thing that is eternally life-changing. And yet we are afraid and we are sleeping Many of us, not all of us, I'm not saying that. Many of us have our light under a bushel. Close with this. If Jonah is the antagonist, God is the protagonist here. Because this does not end with finger-wagging conviction. It ends with the incredible grace of God. After all, God sent his son to be the exact opposite of Jonah the exact opposite of Jonah, who would go to his enemies, who would actually catch the first flight to Nineveh. And to go into danger and to offer himself up so that they may know the very thing that that revolutionized the world, so that they may know the mercy and the love and the grace of his Father in heaven. Jesus was never seeking approval. Is that Ever crossed your mind? Jesus was never seeking man to please men. That's why his crowds dwindled big time. And I know that's hard. And I know we're not Jesus. But I pray that as we are convicted um, to lean into the mercy of God, we might take some steps in that direction to tell the world about the love of a merciful God.
who goes to Mosul and the ends of the earth. I want to take a second to just be silent and pray. Um, I want to do that, though, with the idea of the table in mind. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. Okay? And so we understand that even Jonah, in the midst of his rebellion, God, and we'll see, over and over and over again, pursues Jonah with his love and brings him back into his presence by radical means, as you may know. But he does that because God loves the rebel. And we'll see that at the table. But let's take a moment now and just silently confess our sins. Maybe there's someone who you need to specifically pray for that you need to love, that you need to share the the hope you have with today. Put that person in your mind. Spend these next minute or so praying for them if... um, if, if not repenting for your own hearts. And if you are not a follower in Christ um, and you don't understand prayer at all, sit quietly. And, and, and I would just ask that you would plumb the depths of your own heart to see um, your own need for mercy. Um, so let's take a, a minute or two to be quiet and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, you hear our hearts. Um, for many of you hear the desire to be faithful in little ways. Help us to know that we don't have to convert the world. We don't have to um, go to Mosul and preach from the, the street corner. But we are called to be faithful and and the little things that shine forth your light in the world, whether that's changing diapers or um, leading Bible studies or being really um, a really good banker. But help us to see that the arc of all of our vocations ought to bend towards shining your light in this world, that you have called us fundamentally as followers of you to follow you into the work you are doing around the world. I'll pray for eyes to see that. I pray for conviction when we're not living into that. I pray for action to be built upon that conviction, not only repentance, but actual um, opening up our mouths to proclaim your goodness because, Lord Jesus, you are good and you are great and you have done it. And I pray most of all that our hearts would be filled with that truth, that we might know that you are the savior of souls and that you love 
Ninevites as much as you love Hebrews. Thank you for that. Thank you. You demonstrated on that, that through Christ on the cross. And all God's people said, Amen.